Are you ready for good talk? A can of pet food, where every ingredient matters. Some companies like to brag about their first ingredient, but the Acana Pet Food team is proud of their entire bag. That's because every recipe has been thoughtfully sourced and carefully crafted with the highest quality ingredients, starting with quality animal ingredients, balanced with whole fruits and vegetables. Acana Pet Foods are rich in the protein and nutrients your dog or cat needs to feel and look their best. Available in grain-free, healthy grains, and singles for sensitive dogs. Acana. Go beyond the first ingredient. there, Peter Mansbridge here in Stratford, Ontario. Chantelle Bear is in Montreal, and Bruce Anderson is a, she, he's actually on the road today um, in Toronto. So he's in a hiding out in a hotel room in Toronto, but patching us in because there's no yeah. way he wants to miss good talk on any day. Fingers fingers crossed for the sound quality, but I'm so excited to be here. Good. Um, I don't know how many people have been to Tofino, but it, I've been there a couple of times. I think you guys have probably been there at some point or another. Not rich enough. No. Well, it is a fantastic place. It's beautiful. Um, you know, west coast of Vancouver Island. It's hard to beat it anywhere along the west coast of Vancouver Island. It's pretty spectacular. But Tofino is, is right there. It's got a great beach. I think it's called Long Beach. You think you're in... California. I mean, it's beautiful. There's surfing. There's the whole bit. It's a great spot. Well, it turns out that for National Reconciliation Day, Truth and Reconciliation Day, the Prime Minister kind of looks like he made it into a long weekend and he's got the family and kids uh, in Tofino and was out on Long Beach yesterday. So I guess the question is, some people are really upset about this uh, and thinking that this was kind of dismissing the meaning of the day. Now, in his defense, he had been in an event the night before with other politicians um, that signaled and marked the day. But yesterday, the images of him on the beach with family kind of turning it into a long weekend, I'm not sure how that's going to fly. And I thought we could open up today's good talk with uh, a little discussion on that because it will lead us into the bigger discussion on indigenous but let's let me let me start with that was tofino a mistake chantal if we're talking about it right off the top it probably is not because it was a great uh, idea you ask is it gonna fly i think it uh, landed uh, like a lead balloon uh and, and there are many reasons for that. Uh, some have to do with context. The prime minister's office publishes an itinerary for the prime minister uh, every day. And when he is taking a day off, it says personal. Otherwise, it says uh, private meetings. And it says where he is for that day. And his itinerary yesterday morning said Ottawa private meetings. It didn't say Tofino private meetings. That was adjusted when it became obvious that someone somewhere had seen the prime minister in Tofino. Then a spokesperson for his office said, well, yes, he's in Tofino, but he's making calls to survivors uh, to find the way forward on this file. Uh, He's not on the beach. As luck would have it. Then pictures surfaced of the prime minister on the beach. So the entire thing suggests that the prime minister and his office did not feel that it was a great idea to tell Canadians where the prime minister was on that day. The absence was made less conspicuous by the event of the night before. But the problem for Mr. Trudeau is you can't have everything. You can't have the uh, the great solemn words and the creation of a day to reflect on uh, on reconciliation and at the same time have your actions on that. They not follow your words. That's been a familiar pattern on other files. And um, it doesn't, there is, you can want to have a holiday. The prime minister has access to planes, by the way, if he's not going to miss a flight and not find another one to get to Tofino. But this was really tone deaf. Bruce? 
Yeah, I don't think there's any question that this is this was clumsy and um, and deserved to be considered again. Um, but I also feel like the you know the whole question of whether or not this is um, kind of a permanent mark against Mr. Trudeau in the sense of do people believe that he doesn't care about this agenda? I doubt it. Um, I think the I think it was clumsy in the sense that even if he decided that he was going to be traveling to Tofino on that day, um, it would have been better had his office uh, organized to let people know about the event the night before and about the calls that he reportedly made um, while he was uh, traveling so that people could kind of understand a little bit more that he wasn't completely indifferent to the day. so that's more of an issues management question, but I, you know, I, I, I can't disagree with Chantel's point of view, which is that the day is meant to have symbolism and symbols, therefore, uh, they matter. And, uh, and symbolically, um, this was not the story that he would have, uh, he would have wanted for, for that day. Having said that, I also was driving through Toronto yesterday and I uh, went by a park where, hundreds and hundreds of people were gathering to mark the occasion. And I don't know, I I sort of, I felt after watching and hearing the various things that I heard about yesterday, not just the, the PMs thing that, that this had been a useful thing to do and that, that we should um, take some, uh, we should see as somewhat good news that the country uh, embraces this conversation, um, is serious about it, and um, and that it represents, you know, that in the last year or two, maybe we've had a step change in how we talk about uh, Indigenous relationships. No, I, um, I uh, somewhat similar to what you experienced yesterday. I mean, I, what I was aware of was uh, in so many schools across the country, from east to west, from, you know, south to north, um, Canadians were, and kids especially, you know, were wearing the orange T-shirts and, and, you know, orange sweaters and remembering and taking classes and reading books and, you know, all the things that so many people wanted to see happen after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission uh, reported six years ago now. Um, it was happening, and it was happening on a, you know, a wide national scale by thousands, if not tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people. And then this, you know, talk about symbolism, the prime minister uh, doing what he did. I mean, I, I find it stunning, absolutely remarkable that uh, no one in his office said, you know what, this is not going to look good. There is no way this can look good in spite of, you know, what you attended the night before, but I mean, why hold off a day or pick another weekend, (laughs) do something because you will live with this forever. This will now always become a part of the discussion and the debate, just like other things, as Chantel mentioned on other seemingly tone deaf moments on, on certain events. This will now, whenever the, whenever the issue is raised and we're going to get to the, one of the big issues, um, on the Indigenous file in a moment. But whenever it's raised, this will be part of the package. It will be reminded about how he hit the beach and the story will get greater and greater. Next, it'll be, you know, he was surfing. He was this, he was that, whatever it was. It wasn't what the day had been designed to be. And, uh, you know, so I think uh, tone deaf is probably the most, and clumsy or probably the most, uh, you know, polite words that can be used for uh, for 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 yesterday's events, especially when this was a week where not only were we signaling the day, but the courts, you know, threw back yet another uh, attempt by Ottawa um, to dismiss an earlier decision uh, about Ottawa's vulnerability on the issue of. Uh, um, child, uh, indigenous children's uh, rights in terms of education and, and uh, health and so on and so forth, um, which also looks 
I mean, on the on the face of it, looks tone deaf. Like people go, you got to be kidding. They lost the case in court. Why are they fighting it? Why are they fighting it for years? And why are they probably still going to fight it even after losing this latest round? Um, they, they keep seeming to be putting themselves in a box on, on the indigenous file. At the same time, you know, you, uh, I give them credit on the, on the water situation. It's still appalling that there are like three dozen communities, all indigenous, that don't have safe drinking water. But there were hundreds a couple of years ago. So there has been movement on that, that part of the file. But on this, on the court case, and how what happened yesterday, man, I mean, like, it, it's not a, is, not a pretty picture. If it, if it uh, quacks like a duck, it's usually a duck, and there is a pattern in what you have just described. I want to talk about this court uh, issue. Uh, but first, a word about something that Bruce said that I believe is important going forward for this national day. He talked about schools. And there has been debate about some provinces uh, not making this day a day off provincially. The schools were open in Quebec and Ontario. And I think that's a good thing. Uh, because I believe that more is accomplished by having schools open on that day and all of the things that Bruce talked about happen than adding a day off in the calendar uh, of parents and children across the country. Uh, and I say that having watched what has been happening over the years on November 11th, another federal uh, day off that is not a day off provincially. And where the day has served to, to, to do activities with kids, to bring stories about the world wars in the picture uh, and Canada's role in them. And, and there, there are times when it is actually more useful if you really want a day to be a day of remembrance, to have uh, schools go on as normal and courses go on and universities as normal and these kinds of issues being discussed more. Uh, rather than having the opportunity to skip town and spend an extra day at the beach. Now, about the court case. This is something that the government could have done uh, for the National uh, Day of Truth and Reconciliation, and that would have been to say, we lost fair and square. I read that ruling of the federal court. It threw out all of the federal arguments, uh, and the federal government was arguing against the uh, Human Rights Tribunal decision in two files, uh, uh, not on the principle of compensating Indigenous children or, or insurance, ensuring that they have service, access to health services, um, but on, on the notion that those tribunals have overstepped their mandate. There is very little in the federal court's ruling that will give grounds to any federal lawyer uh, to say we're going to take this to the Supreme Court and you'll see we're going to win in this case. They have 30 days, which apparently they plan to use. They could have said we're laying down our weapons here. Uh, we are not going to continue this rare guard battle, especially since there was a vote in the last parliament in the House of Commons on a motion calling on the government to stop uh, and desist from these legal actions. And every single opposition party voted for that motion, including a few liberals on the government side, and the government abstained. So if you don't believe strongly enough in what you're doing, that you want to show up and vote to say, we believe we're doing the right thing, then possibly it would have been a good time to say, we got the message from the federal court and we will be dropping uh, this, um, this legal battle and moving on to awarding compensation. I still think that there is a chance that they will do that. But I, I, again, I think given all that, it was another missed opportunity. You know, I, watching this over the last couple of years, one of the, um, one of the awkward parts of all this is there, there doesn't appear to be a case being made in a public fashion for why the government is taking the position it's taking i mean they try to answer that question but it doesn't seem like it's uh, that it's being heard if, if it's being made at all um bruce i don't want you to put in a, you in a position that uh <laughs> that you don't want to be but um or you don't agree with 
but uh, at the same time, I assume there has to there there must be a case where that why the government is taking the position it's taking. I mean, is it all about money? Is it all about the impact of uh, uh, of this decision in terms of cost at a time when governments and federal government uh, no slouch in this matter is spending billions and billions of dollars uh, on other things? Um, is this all about money? Uh, I don't. I don't think so, but um, I share your frustration that the that the only real comprehensive version of what the government is trying to do um, with these cases is not really available to the public. We don't hear it. It's not. It's not. And so all we hear is the legitimate sense of frustration and grievance that it looks like the government says it cares about indigenous people and in particular indigenous children um, and keeps on litigating against their interests. So I've been around enough um, situations where organizations I work with have to pursue legal uh, channels and approaches that uh, look horrible publicly, but for which there is some underlying rationale. It's hard to explain, but also hard to avoid if you're just trying to do good governance. Now, I have to assume um, either that the motive of the government uh, in continuing these court cases is to deny compensation for these kids or limit it or uh, somehow kind of reduce the um, uh, the generosity of future sale, uh, settlements, that have you, or uh, that they're getting legal advice that says that you need to uh, you need to pursue these arguments in order to keep uh, a precedent from occurring that you don't want to occur. Now, I'm saying that because I I have trouble believing that the motive is the first, um, and so uh, I tend to look at the government on this and say. You know, like if I'm just thinking about their political context, rip this Band-Aid off yesterday and say, we're not going to fight these court cases anymore. And the people that I know who are kind of working on these files, there's there's nothing about them that makes me think that they're trying to reduce um, the entitlements of these kids or that they uh, that they take some sort of pride in standing on some sort of legal point that is being argued by their attorney. So I assume without knowing for sure that the arguments that are being made are being made not by the politicians to the lawyers, but by the lawyers to the politicians saying, let us pursue these arguments these ways for these reasons. And I'm, you know, we've all seen situations where politicians kind of ignore that legal advice. Um, do they put themselves in another kind of jeopardy? So it, I, it feels to me like there's a Hobson's choice there in the end. Uh, hopefully that this ruling uh, uh, gives the government a way to end the Hobson's choice and pick the, the lane that makes the most sense given their political kind of orientation on these issues and the public's general sense of let's move on and, and, and let's be appropriately considerate of the rights and the entitlements of, of these kids. That's my, that's my hope. And I'm frustrated like everybody is with the, the conversation seems to feel like there's only one side to it when you kind of wonder, well, maybe there is another side to it. And we just don't really hear it expressed or explained. Well, if there was a, a, a legal argument to be had, it was lost. Yeah. So that should make the what happens next a no-brainer part of the I, I'm a, with Bruce. I don't believe the issue is that uh, we're trying to save dollars. Uh, on this. Uh, I think the issue is that the federal government would like to have the flexibility to set the terms of the compensation according to criteria that are uh, not as as much a, a based on a blanket. We're going to give uh, each kid who was taken away from his or her home after 2006. We're talking 2006 here. That's not in some previous life. Uh, $40,000, parents, grandparents. The fact that that works out to billions of dollars tells us something about how uh, Canada is taking children or, or denying Indigenous children in our times. Uh, the services that other children have had. But 
having done the argument thing in court and having been told to pack up and move on, I think the lawyers should now be allowed to move on to other challenges uh, yep. and the government move on to uh, putting in practice those tribunals uh, orders. Completely agree. You know, if, if, there's, if there's actual negotiation going on between lawyers, you, you can appreciate at this point that the lawyers on the Indigenous side are telling their clients, hey, don't change a thing. You know, we're winning in terms of public opinion. We're winning in the courts. We're like pitching a shutout here. Nobody's touching us. Why would we change anything? Uh, they're going to have to. They're going to have to crater their position. Um, which I don't know. Uh, in a way, just makes it that even that much more <laughs> difficult to come up with a with a solution to this. But. Um, I don't know. I, I I tend to agree with both of you that it, that that it's time. It was probably time a few years ago. It's certainly time now um, to, as Bruce said, you know, rip the bandaid off and you know get this resolved. Um, part of the discussion around the cabinet table on this will be the uh, those who are in the in the cabinet positions that affect this portfolio. And uh, unlike past years, there there are two really now. There's um, uh, and uh, the lead one, it seems, especially lately, has been Mark Miller, who's the Indigenous Services Minister, and who has uh, even in the campaign, even just a couple of days before the the actual election, was uh, in one of the on one of the First Nations um, as part of opening up a new water filtration plan. Um, I've always in the in my years watching this uh, situation unfold and the different ministers have been in it, that, that ministry is always, has often been one that ministers, you know, go into kind of reluctantly and then get out of as soon as they can. And it's been part of the problem because, the, you know, the various uh, Indigenous groups across the country are constantly trying to train, if you will, a non-Indigenous person in that, in that portfolio. Um, the Prime Minister is... is you know, when he's not on the beach, cheap shot, uh, is is also cabinet making. Uh, and I imagine when he gets around to that box, he's got to make a decision on Mark Miller. I don't know what Mark Miller wants, but it would seem to me in an, in with the number of indigenous leaders I've spoken to, they're not it's not unanimous, but most of the ones that I have spoken to would like to see him stay in that portfolio. Would that be the wise position at this point is to keep him in the job he's in, even if he has ambitions to, to, to reach higher? Who wants to take a run at that? Problem with cabinet making is um, there are so many considerations that you never know what will end up happening because of things to have nothing to do with actually efficiency or or, or personal preferences. Uh, and this cabinet is a bit of a puzzle in the sense that uh, there's the gender parity uh, issue. Uh, and then there is the uh, introducing at least one male minister from uh, Alberta. And the list goes on. Consistency would would require to keep an efficient minister in that difficult portfolio. It doesn't, you know, jump to mind that there are many in uh, the current cabinet that have a personal commitment to the file, and he does. Uh, and he had that personal commitment to the file before he was appointed uh, in that position. And you are right, the revolving door uh, portfolio that it has been has been a hindrance and not a help because there has been a tendency on the part of ministers to serve their penance and hope for a promotion or or a switch or a, to another portfolio as soon as possible. And we have had people who would have been really able uh, ministers if they'd been allowed to stay for longer. Jim Prentice under Stephen Harper is a case in point, but they 
were never there long enough to make a big difference. So, yeah, on balance, I would keep him there. But on balance, I realized that Mr. Trudeau is playing with a, a team that's got a few A players, many, many B and Cs. And uh, Mark Miller would be considered an A player at this point. I'd love to hear the conversation um, if there is one. You know, the Prime Minister calls Mark Miller or brings him into the office and, and says, Mark, I want you to to stay in that portfolio um, because you've achieved, you know, a, a degree of success and we want you to continue doing that. We want to resolve all these issues. And Mark Miller says, and here, here's where I'm imagining. Mark Miller says, okay, I, Prime Minister, I, of course, I will, you know, I'll do what you ask, but I, I would like to place one condition, and that's we drop this case on the kids. Can we do it? Can we drop it now? Now, I don't know. You can't, I'm not sure you're, you're ever in the position to put down an ultimatum like that. It'd be interesting if he did. And then you'd have to tell the justice minister because, yes, it does involve the two ministers in charge of indigenous uh, uh, files, but uh, these also involve justice. Well, the justice minister uh, might love that opportunity, too, at the same time. <laughs> Bruce? So, yeah, on Mark Miller, uh, you know, we've all known lots of cabinet ministers and seen lots of them in action. And from my standpoint, in the more than 30 years I've been watching cabinets. Mark Miller is one of the top five or 10% in terms of quality individuals in, in cabinet. Um, the PM is lucky to have him uh, there. Um, he's done, a, I think, a really good job in a very, very difficult portfolio. And he's done that because he's, um, he's very empathetic uh, and uh, he's extremely smart and he's very hardworking. Um, I don't think there's any daylight between him and the prime minister, to your point, uh, Peter, of him sort of putting a condition with the PM. I think it would be more of a conversation if they were going to even need to have a conversation about that. But it would be a conversation rather than a, some sort of a quasi negotiation because they are uh, um, they've known each other for a very long time. And I think they, they share a lot of uh, a lot of similar perspectives and probably just are able to have a conversation about something that, that requires that um, that kind of uh, understanding of where they where they want to go with a critical part of a critical file. Uh, I think that uh, cabinet making, I agree with Chantal, it's complicated. I think there's also probably an instinct on the one hand to not change ministers who have huge familiarity and grasp of complex portfolios and at the same time refresh uh, the lineup somewhat, uh, but if if uh, if I were Mr. Trudeau, I would not move Jonathan Wilkinson at Environment and Climate Change. I would not move Mark Miller. Um, he's obviously not going to move Christian Freeland. Um, I don't know that my list of would not moves goes much beyond that, but I wouldn't move Mark Miller to to your very direct question. Okay, so who would we move? <laughs> our little cabinet making session here on good talk oh. <laughs> who, who would i didn't we think we were going to do this are we yeah <laughs> okay. well you know i mean i think you make the case um you know obviously for uh, that you stay with certain people who seem to have done well but you also you know you just lost what you were trying to achieve a majority government you've got a minority government you have certain things certain areas where you're trying to patch up your relationship with the people. Um, you know, I think we've kind of talked about defense and whether Harjit Sajjan should be uh, replaced in that portfolio. But is, are there any name? I mean, the problem with cabinets these days is most Canadians don't know who, you know, aside from a couple of names, don't really know any of them. Um, they're sort of you hear about them the day they're appointed, and then you don't really hear about them again until until they, they're, they're replaced. But are there, has anybody not deserving of a, of a position of some authority in cabinet right now that uh, the prime minister may be contemplating their, uh, their exit from his little uh, group and uh, being replaced? Chantal. <laughs> Oh boy. Well, you start, you have to start off from the premise that it's going to be very hard to drop uh, any woman from the current cabinet for the obvious gender parity reason. You're a short four. 
uh, and you want to uh, bring on at least one male minister, that would be the, the, the Randy Boissonneau from Edmonton. You're going to have at least one minister from Alberta. The two elected MPs are male. So it uh, doesn't really matter what you think about the qualities or the faults of whoever is female in remaining on that bench, most of whom have served well, by the way. Um, and then you've got question marks. Bill Blair has been a real asset during election campaigns whenever the gun issue has surfaced, and it has made a difference to the outcome of this election and to the previous election, especially in areas like the GTA. Uh, but also the greater Vancouver area. On the other hand, he is seen by most of the groups that call for tighter gun control regulations as an obstacle uh, to those. Uh, and uh, I saw this week the group, uh, Je me souviens, from Polytechnique calling on Justin Trudeau to replace Bill Blair uh, in his portfolio so that they have a minister who is more open to uh, tighter gun control regulations. So that's a question mark for Justin Trudeau to, to deal with. Dominique Leblanc uh, has been really useful as the points person for intergovernmental affairs relations. You could imagine him doing something else uh, that would be really useful. But this is a prime minister who is about to go in a major federal provincial debate over the financing of healthcare. You probably want a minister who is able to call in the various provinces and not have the, whoever answers the phone hang up on him because he, he or she is so divisive or has no influence on the prime minister. And no one doubts that Dominique Leblanc has influence on Justin Trudeau. They too have known each other for a long time. So another question mark here. If you're going to have a big debate over health care, should you have a health minister as opposed to the current one that can actually uh, debate uh, Quebec in particular in Quebec's first main language, French? It's not helpful uh, to advance the federal arguments on health care that the minister cannot actually carry your own arguments uh, in French because uh, of language challenges. So. Other question mark here. Mark Garneau probably loves being foreign affairs minister. There, but is he as dynamic as the job will require going forward? And if he is reconducted, will we see him go the road of John McCallum and Stéphane Zion and become an ambassador in, in six months? His is a safe seat. It's easy to have a by-election there. Uh, and I can think of at least three other MPs who would like to be foreign affairs minister. The list is probably longer. And then there's the case of um, Stephen Guilbeault. You guys may not be aware of this, but apparently, suddenly, he has become the main topic of interest in the Quebec media. The, and the debate is all over, should he be the environment minister? I agree with Bruce that uh, Wilkinson... Uh, should remain at environment. But uh, Stephen Guilbeault has run into trouble with his bill on um, the new Broadcasting Act. He is very popular in cultural circles and environmental circles in Quebec. I'm not sure that he should stay in heritage uh, to continue with uh, his previous bill, Or, but I am convinced that if he moves to the environment, uh, the prime minister will be painting a target on the back of his environment minister. Uh, Bruce? Well, it's always, I found that very interesting and, uh, <laughs> and lots of food for thought. Um, Chantal, I, and a number of things you said, I completely agree with, even some I hadn't thought of, I now vehemently agree with, but Here's what I would probably be thinking first if I was the Prime Minister at this juncture. The first thing I would do is look at my lineup of current ministers and, and say, is there anybody who's egregiously underperformed? And I think that's a, uh, that's a, a short, if not empty list. Um, but then I would sort of say, well, who are the ministers on my roster who served long enough with enough distinction that it might be time to look at them and say, is there some, is there some next chapter for you that doesn't involve occupying a seat around the cabinet table? Um, and, uh, and I think there are a few uh, that sort of fit that description. 
uh, Chantal mentioned one of them. Um, and, and that then gives you a sense of, okay, well, if there's, uh, if there's a, a transition uh, opportunity for a few, that opens up a few more uh, options. And then the, the next criteria I would go to is who has underperformed from the standpoint of being really politically useful? Um, because, you know, in some departments, you can have a minister who's competent enough uh, that nothing ever goes off the rails. But they're, they really achieve no visibility. There's, it's so hard to get attention for a lot of what ministers do now. Um, so it's not completely on them if they don't. But if they're not trying very hard or accomplishing some measure of effectiveness from a communication standpoint, it's a big part of the job. I mean, these are not people who were picked for these jobs because they're great administrators in most instances. They're picked for those jobs because they're successful politicians. And the art of politics is, um, you know, kind of leading a, uh, a mandate through a department and its execution, but also communicating and building support for that mandate uh, with the general public. Um, and I think there probably are several who, if you looked at it and said, did they, did anybody really notice what they did? Uh, did they make much of an effort to break through that kind of wall of disinterest and uh, all the other competing information that's out there and, and kind of land some messaging that's useful for the government? And, and so maybe there's a couple more there. Um, um, and yes, you'll notice I'm studiously avoiding naming names. Yeah. I don't really feel this like is, that's this the, has uh, been a great lecture on process, right? And I say, and I mean that. How much no, more no, time do we have? I actually <laughs> say that in a complimentary way. I mean, I think it is a good lesson on process uh, in, in terms of how you might uh, uh, put together a cabinet. But it's also, but <laughs> you're quite right. You managed to to uh, deftly do that without mentioning a single name. I got to take a break. Um, and we Thank come, God. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, and then we'll come back and talk about another exciting moment. Will Aaron O'Toole make it through the next week? Okay, we're back with Good Talk. Bruce Anderson's in Toronto in a hotel room. That's why it sounds maybe a little muffled, but it's not bad, actually. It's pretty good. And Chantelle Bear is in uh, Montreal. I'm in Stratford, Ontario. I'm Peter Mansbridge. This is Good Talk on the bridge. And you can hear us, obviously, on uh, Sirius XM, Channel 167, and wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Aaron O'Toole, the next week is an important one for him. He'll still have his job a week from now, but it may be... Uh, greatly threatened, depending on the outcome of a meeting uh, of his uh, the membership of his party. Um, who won? Uh, you know, Chantel. We, we love starting with you because so Mr. O'Toole will be meeting uh, with his caucus for the first time in person. I understand on October fifth, so early next week. At that first meeting, uh, per. Uh, legislation agreed to by the House of Commons, I think in 2015, uh, in the last stretch of the Harper government, I believe. Um, MPs are, are expected to decide whether to award themselves a series of powers, such as the power to select their chair, um, etc. And one in particular uh, is the power to review uh, the leadership of the leader, to vote out the leader. That's uh, uh, going to be a caucus vote. In the previous parliament, when Andrew Scheer met his MPs for the first time, they declined to give themselves that power. That did not protect uh, Andrew Scheer, as we know. A few months later, he was still gone. But, but should they award themselves that power, then there will be a process in place that would allow, on the basis of the signature of one-fifth of caucus, uh, that there would be a secret ballot on whether Aaron, o uh, Aaron O'Toole should remain as leader or whether an interim leader should be, um, should be appointed. Now, two points. Mr. O'Toole is going to be facing challenges going forward. There are already members uh, lining up to, to have petitions signed to start processes uh, for a leadership review earlier than the scheduled one in 2023. So here's the, the issue for him. Would it be better for him if the, the MPs next week gave themselves that power and subsequently did have a vote for his leadership that 
affirmed it. Uh, and that depends on his reading of caucus's mood and whether he has enough support to survive such a vote. If that were the case, he would be better off for that vote to happen because he could then claim that he has secured the backing of caucus, that they were given the opportunity to replace him. I uh, could not give you a countdown. My impression from outside is that uh, at this point, a majority would probably vote to retain Aaron O'Toole. And I'll just remind you in passing that even if it came to a vote and a majority in caucus said, we don't want Aaron O'Toole, if I were him, I'd go home and do something else. But he would also have the option of rerunning for his job in the way that Stockwell Day did with very little success as we all remember, but still. but uh, So the sense I get from afar is that Mr. O'Toole actually wants his MPs to give themselves that power next week. You know why they're doing it on October 5th, of course. He's trying to hide that story behind the other big story of that day. Your birthday? Your book. Your book. My book. book. <laughs> the launch of my book is October 5th. And, you know, it's going to obviously attract so much attention that this will be buried. That's clever. Boy, you're good at uh, putting that little (laughs) promo inside there. More available at the petermansbridge.com. Anyway. Thinking about this, Peter, uh, uh, I assume that you were going to ask me about that. Let me just jump in there. If I were Mr. O'Toole and I sort of think about how leaders who've been under this kind of pressure in the past have sort of looked at their situation and and it's, it's one of those things where you have to be really clear eyed about it. You have to be really honest with yourself and your small team about the situation you're in, because I think that it's possible that he gets through next week. uh, Okay. But that isn't going to be the end of it. He has got some serious, serious trouble coming his way. It's going to come from people who want vengeance because they think that he's mistreated them. Uh, He's going to come from people who want revenge because they think they think that he campaigned to win their love in the leadership and then abandoned them um, when he was campaigning to win the votes of Canadians. And it's going to come from people who are just frustrated that that yet again, the Conservative Party has found a way to shrink the number of accessible voters uh, that it has when it should be trying to do the opposite. Now, those three groups aren't the same and they don't all get along and they don't all want the same outcome, but they all probably want one thing in common, which is a different leader come the time of the next election. And uh, so he needs to figure out which of those things can I do something about? And if, if you were in his shoes, you would call Stephen Harper and say, can I come and meet with you? And can you talk me through this? And if the answer is, I'm really busy, can we get together maybe in March or April, then you know your answer is that the Harper people are against you. And then you call Pierre Polyab and you say, look, we need to have dinner and we need to uh, sort through our problems and we need to uh, find a way to fight together. And if Pierre Polyev says, uh, see you in April or May, but I'm busy right now, then you know that you're not going to uh, get the support of Pierre Polyev and the people who support him. Um, now, if both of those things happen, he probably should throw in the towel because I don't think that you can uh, you can sustain that role if you have that much uh, kind of institutional slash organized indifference or uh, mistrust of your your leadership. But then he has the, the third choice, which is to try to build a public persona that is more compelling than the one that he was able to marshal before election day and is directionally where he really believes the Conservative Party in the country should go uh, because he's got an opportunity with the platform to try to do that. He, for people who watched him closely, I think in the last couple of years, and that's not everybody in Canada, there's a sense of, well, what does he really believe? Does he really, is he really kind of um, secretly or not so secretly kind of in agreement with social conservatives? Um, Or is he, is he really just a kind of a liberal in, in conservative clothing? Uh, I think he, if he wants to sustain his leadership by building some public enthusiasm for it, 
He needs to be absolutely blunt and use language that's unmistakable about what his personal values are, the priorities that he sets for the country, and not try to look like he's um, he's kind of walking a very fine line between what conservatives in Western Canada will uh, be willing to hold their nose and go along with, and and what centrist voters in in the rest of Canada might be interested in in voting for uh, in a in a change of government scenario down the road. It's a very very tough. A road that he's got to hoe, and that's the uh, a radish uh, metaphor. <laughs> if you know, if he did throw in the towel, that would be quite the front bench on the conservative side of the, of the House of Commons. Uh, you know, enough uh, either former leaders or those who wanted to be leader uh, sitting there, uh, and no leader, uh, no uh, no obvious heir apparent at, uh, at this point, but. Um, who would be the most significant person who's on Aaron O'Toole's side at this this moment of decision for his party? Who would who'd be the most conservative or the most, you know, um, who would be the biggest supporter of Aaron O'Toole at this point, either in the House or, or outside of the House? Biggest uh, supporter of uh, Aaron O'Toole is called, uh, is virtually unanimous Quebec caucus, including senators, uh, who, to a man and a woman, as far as I can tell, believe that anyone that comes after will actually cause the the disappearance of the party in Quebec versus someone who has gotten the blessing of both Brian Mulroney and Francois de Gaulle, which is something that they believe they can take to the bank and do more with in another election. Now, Bruce mentioned Stephen Harper. Stephen Harper would have still to think long and hard before he uh, decided that he was not available until maybe early next year for a meeting, not because uh, he was treated particularly well by Aaron O'Toole over the course of this campaign. The bringing out uh, Brian Mulroney and mentioning him in uh, French interviews and not spending a lot of time talking about Stephen Harper, except to say this isn't your grandfather or your father's party. Who did that refer to if it not? Brian Mulroney. But Stephen Harper did leave a legacy. It was a united party that was looking forward, that was not hostage to social conservatives, and that broke through in Quebec. And he has to know that if Aaron O'Toole goes down quickly, the next leader will likely be chosen by social conservatives and brought back to its reform rules. And I refer you to an open letter this week by Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall, former Saskatchewan Premier Brad Wall, whose prescription for the party under the guise of supporting Aaron O'Toole was that the party should turn against Quebec, uh, launch a fight against uh, asymmetrical federalism as it applies to that province, uh, fight Bill 21 on secularism and go big on pipelines uh, and energy projects and dismantling uh, Justin Trudeau's environmental prescriptions. If Mr. Wall were here, we could ask him where he gets the impression that voters in Ontario and BC would want to vote for that. But still, it tells you something about some of the pull that will be part and parcel of the succession and where it could lead the Conservative Party with an election maybe two, two and a half years down the road. You know, it was only a few years ago that we were talking about Brad Wall taking French lessons. Well, now he could lead the party that he has in mind without speaking French. Exactly. So obviously those lessons didn't work out too well. Or if he did, he decided he didn't need to use them. Um, We're almost out of time. And I have a minute for each of you. The Prime Minister earlier the, uh, this week, uh, you know, outlined his agenda. Or what he, what were the important parts of his agenda? I want you to name, or or, or or to talk about the one area that you think is the most important on his agenda list. We'll do that right after this. Okay, as I said, we've only got time for a minute or so each. The Prime Minister's agenda, what's the most important uh, point on there? Which box do you check off, Chantal? The one he didn't, but he reappointed this finance minister, so I'm guessing it would be uh, useful to have a fiscal update uh, going forward before the end of the year. 
So that, you know, fiscal update is, it's not a budget, but it gives you a clear indication of kind of the direction in which they're heading. And sometimes they manage, manage to slip in a few tax changes, even into a fiscal update, which is always a challenge uh, and would be especially so in a minority government, but we'll see. Um, Bruce. Pandemic, I think that um, getting to a place where the fiscal situation of the country and the economic growth rate and the sense of uh, a return to normalcy is clear. We're not quite there yet. It feels on a good day like we're in the last inning of that, uh, but we're not there yet. And so um, there is going to be some controversy and some discomfort with standing up these vaccine mandates and the rules around plane and train travel. And um, uh, I'm sure we're going to be talking about that through um, into the new year uh, and hopefully at that point, um, we'll be through that. And then the country really can turn to what, what, what does the non-pandemic agenda look like or the post-pandemic agenda look like? And I think Chantel's right that that's a big, there's a big set of questions there about the fiscal realities and, and uh, where we stand. Um, so that's, that's the priority for me. All right. Um, good discussion, as always, on Good Talk. I uh, enjoyed hearing uh, both of your perspectives on all the issues we discussed today. A couple of pointers about next week. On Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday of next week, uh, there will be no episode of The Bridge because I'm otherwise occupied. Can, can <laughs> I just do it alone on Wednesday? <laughs> like, I just want to do all the smoke, mirrors, and truth myself. And I can talk about your book. You won't be there, but we can do that. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll give that some serious consideration. Uh, but it will be a busy week on the book. Book launches, as Chantel knows from her books, um, they do tend to occupy a, a good chunk of your time in doing publicity and promotion around those books. And I'm looking forward to... Um, uh, launching uh, my book off the record. I've already done a number of uh, interviews and uh, promotional tours, and I've got a lot more to do in the next uh, 10 days to two weeks. So next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, no edition of uh, The Bridge on uh, SiriusXM. Uh, my buddy Andrew Crystal will be doing that hour. Uh, so uh, look forward to having uh, to hear what he has to say. Uh, maybe I'll give a plug to both book, you know, who knows. Uh, but back Thursday and Friday of next week, and of course Friday of next week will be a good talk where these two good people, Bruce Anderson and Chantelle Bear, will be back with us. Um, so that's it for uh, this week on The Bridge and uh, for Good Talk. I'm Peter Mansbridge for Chantelle and Bruce. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you again. Well, in a few days' time. Mm-hmm.